Good Wednesday morning, everyone. We are doing something a little bit different today. John was asked to speak at Mobile, Alabama at a CMBA conference, a winter conference for students. And so you are going to be listening to that talk. This is going to be talk two, and there are a total of three talks. Let's pray. Father, once again, we come into your presence because you tell us to. And our Lord taught us to. He taught us we can do nothing without him. That's hard for us to understand, but we know at the deepest level it is true. And so we ask that your life be present in this room, in our Lord and in the Holy Spirit, that good things may happen for Christ's sake. Amen. Uh, that meeting that's uh, focused on the family, I didn't, the number of things that came out of that are beyond belief. Uh, I was asked to go by an American lady who lives in Vancouver, uh, who's been very supportive of the things I've done over the years, and I didn't know that what the date was, but about a year before what has just been described to you, uh, Margaret said, I want you to go to focus on the family. And my response, uh, when I told James Thompson what I said afterwards, he laughed. Um, I said, me, you got to focus on the family? You've got to be joking. And she said, what do you mean? I said, they're a bunch of fascists, aren't they? Uh, I'm certainly sexist. Uh, and she said, you really need to go. I said, on your head be it. I'll go down like a lead balloon. Um, uh, I was in for a very sharp learning experience. Uh, I got to Colorado Springs and they met me at the airport and said, do you want a rental car or shall we drive you? I said, I'm here to talk. I don't need a car. Just get me to where I talk. Uh, there wasn't any money. And they said, to the, so they drove me to the hotel and they said, would you like to go around focus? I said, actually, I would. I'm intrigued. Um, they said, we'll pick you up in half an hour. Can you to fresh up? They could have told me it's five minutes walk, but they picked me up. And I got there and uh, I was shocked. Immediately, I learned why I could never get anyone on the phone that focused on the family at 8.30 Colorado Springs time in the morning. Because I didn't know that Focus on the Family was really a faith organization. They'd never had more than about three weeks funding in the bank. So naturally, when you've only got three weeks funding in the bank, everybody goes to the prayer meeting every morning. So you can't get anyone on the phone at 8.30. That shook me. James Dobson thought whenever there's more money than that in the bank, he would give it away to somebody who needed more, usually black pastors in the inner city, people who really need help. Uh, and they were incredibly hospitable. People were always asking me, was I okay? Was everything all right? I was only there to do a couple of workshops the first time. And I looked at the, the list and there were about three people on it that I knew and respected and the rest meant nothing to me. We had famous names for the plenary sessions who I didn't really want to listen to, frankly. I shouldn't say that, but I might as well tell the truth. Um, anyway, um, I did my sessions and the first one was Kelly must have gone to and it wasn't full, but the next one was. And uh, conversations went on all over the place. At the end, they ask you to fill in a... a uh, assessment of the conference, so I did. I said, uh, your hospitality was unbelievably good. Um, and I really enjoyed what I did there and the, the sessions I went to in the small groups. Pity you wasted the main sessions. They were lacking in contact, content for physicians. Um, 
Uh, I, I was tempted to say, why don't you sell some decent art in the shop? But I didn't say that. Um, and I thought that's my visit to focus on the family. But about a month or six weeks later, I got a call and one of the, I forget who it was, but he said, we've gone through all the evaluations now and the guys had you walking on water. And we also noticed your criticisms. So we want you to come next time and do the plenary session um, devotional for the, for the conference. And why didn't you bring your wife? Focus on the family is the only organization I've spoken for who asked that question. Now we want to pay for her too. And does she by any chance have similar uh, gifts to you? And I said, yes, except that she's obsessional. And if she's going to give a talk, it is totally rehearsed and I can't get near the computer for three weeks. Um, but yes, if you wanted a workshop on working with refugees uh, after a war, she, she'd do that. So the next time we went together and uh, it was amazing. Uh, we ended up having dinner with James Dobson and his wife and uh, I said, <laughs> I've said so many things about your organization that uh, I'm deeply ashamed of in many ways. And he laughed, he said, oh, Mary, said, you have never been on the program because we haven't got the people who listen to us to your point. See, you're academic, you sort something out and you say, this is what everybody should understand. And you think they can do that. He said, I was a trained psychologist, but when God called me to focus on the family, I knew that I was going to be cancelled way back. He didn't use those terms, but... Uh, never take a course in psychology in the university. 90% of them are atheists and don't even know it. They don't know, much, don't know very much at all. And in famous Jordan Peterson comment when asked at the Oxford Union, how many psychologists do you trust? And he laughed and said, one. Uh, and they only trust that one to speak the truth. No, uh, it's not a good way to go at all. And yet it's the default course for so many people. It's ridiculous. He said... We don't do what you do. When I moved here, I said, all right, what's the audience you want to get to, ordinary Americans? What will they actually read? And it turned out they would only read six pictures and six words. You know, so they have about 35 publications. He said, none of them would you wish to read. They'd take you about 30 microseconds. Uh, it was a, a, an important learning moment for me. I have my audience and it's very small. Uh, here, there's Utron. And apart from the Physicians Conference, which sadly because of politics and how petty even Christians can be, they, they stopped that amazing conference after James Dobson retired because the people wanted, who wanted to run Focus were not physicians and they didn't want physicians around. So the guy who was supposed to step into the position didn't. And that, Satan does that to us. Um, physicians, you're all highly intelligent. You wouldn't get into medical school without being fairly well up that spectrum, but you're utterly uneducated. There's no foundation to your lives because you decided you wanted to be a physician when you were seven years old uh, and you've been tunnel vision and you've been trained into memorizing dump and you have no principles underlying your life. Uh, now, that's been my mission ever since then is to try and rebuild the foundations. You know the Psalms. What do the righteous do when the foundations are destroyed? Everything falls down. But not in God's path. And so 
I began yesterday basically trying to get under your skin a little bit and challenge you to at least carve out, keep the Sabbath. Don't do anything to do with work on the Sabbath. Even if you've got an exam on Monday, do not revise on the Sabbath. Instead, do what God told you to do. If you go through the Old Testament, the complaint to the Jews, first of all, is idolatry. So don't have a Ferrari in the garage. That's idolatry. And look at how much money you're spending on cosmetics. That's idolatry. Uh, get around to real beauty. I've had on my desk for years a photograph of my third daughter. So all my children spent their teenage years resuscitating malnourished children in Africa. They all had children die in their arms when they were teenagers, but they saved many more. And a missionary doctor took a picture of Nicola. She was utterly unaware of it. And there was a 15-year-old girl with an African child on her shoulder that she, whose life she had saved. And they were just looking at one another. So the most beautiful picture I've ever seen for me. I can't describe it without tearing up. The best thing I ever did with medical students, I wasn't interested in the Christian ones to begin with. But when I was bullied into going to Africa, and when I got back, the students wanted me to talk about it because most profs go away and study another bit of DNA or something the students don't understand anyway. Um, but... You're idealistic, largely, when you come to medical school. And the idea that somebody would use a sabbatical to go to the middle of Africa and start trying to help there, they like that. And Sally had taken photographs. I said, sure, we can give a talk. And I gave a talk. And at the end of the, the, the talk, two girls came up to me. One was the class feminist, with whom I'd already had the odd run-in. And the other one was a, a Catholic girl who said... Uh, she went to church uh, once or twice some years, uh, very lapsed. But they both said, will you take us to Africa with you? And I said, I'm not sure I'm going back. And they said, your wife is. And I knew that was true. Uh, I was just in denial. And I said, what would you do for me? And I said, they said, we'll do anything you want. They didn't know what they were letting themselves in for. And so we founded a very early uh, outreach secular ministry, it wasn't Christian, uh, it was called Ottawa Medical Students and International Health. And I said, what I need uh, uh, to help me in the next stage of a research project is I need you to live in an African village for a little while and do a health survey of the village. Um, they said, we'll do that. So it was all organized and we set off. Uh, they had no idea what was going to happen to them. Uh, when you cross from Burundi into what was then Zaire, now the non-democratic Democratic Republic of Congo, you pass into an area of zero law. Mobutu uh, used to sell the crossing points for $10,000, and you got a crossing point for so long. And what you're going to do is extort money, just like the days of Matthew and Jesus, uh, and make enough money for you to retire for the rest of your life. So how much you paid at the border was entirely up to the agents. They were absolutely powerful. Um, so you said your prayers before you crossed the border. People going into uh, Zaire at that time, some arrogant ones, uh, left with their underpants only. 
Um, and they passed more. That's the world it was. And so we went uh, 75 miles along the road that you couldn't go more than 10 kilometers an hour to the mission station we used as the base. But I didn't want them staying there because it was a little bit of America plopped down in the middle of Africa. And it, we, in our annual visits for a couple of months, spent more time in African huts than all the missionaries put together had done in 25 years. Uh, they did a wonderful job of running a mission hospital, but they didn't engage the culture. Uh, and so they did, these were preclinical students, so I took them on ward, one ward round of the pediatric ward with two babies to every bed and every known infection except sleeping sickness. And uh, half of them turned green and walked out halfway round, and the others made it through. The next morning we got up at two o'clock because we were going walking. And you had to get up the first ridge of the Atumbi Mountains before the sun came up, otherwise you wouldn't make it. We had some American students who come for gung-ho and happiness, and they didn't get up to 10 o'clock, and they never got up the ridge because they were too late in the day. They weren't serious. These kids were not believers, but they were serious, and they were carrying an industrial battery because they'd asked me, what do the villages need? I said, they have no power. If you really want to do something to help, um, a marine battery and a solar panel and the lamp to go with it, and at least the women can have a light when they have a baby in the middle of the night. And these kids carried that up the mountain and through the rainforest. And to, they went to about eight different villages, and so they got all those villages got a, a light. Um, you get up the mountain, then you walk through the rainforest for about three or four hours. Amazing experience. Best thing I ever did with my kids, they all said, Africa was so good for us because we, I was a physician, I worked too hard. But going there with all my children, except the oldest is a missionary now, she never did the long walks, but the others did. So I walked for hours through the rainforest and along the mountains from one village to another with my, one or two of my kids. You learn so much under those circumstances. The best thing you can do for your children when you start families is get them away from this so-called civilization uh, like that. And they'll, they'll be, none of them are materialists. They, they were cured. So uh, we get to our first village, my favorite village. Uh, the first time I went there, some of the children would run up and they scratched my skin to see if it was black underneath. <laughs> then we were the first white people in that village. And they, and they have a, a lovely affectionate name for me. They call me the wise old man. <laughs> and the children always detect their coming curse, so they run back to the village. And if the world fell apart, I'd love to be there, except that the Tutsis have destroyed the village now. Uh, hopefully it'd be rebuilt. I don't know. We, communication doesn't get there. But we would like to go back once more before we die. But anyway, we, we came into the, the first village, and uh, I'd put... Three girls there, uh, one of whom was Christian. Only of the 40 or so students we took to Africa, only six were Christian when they set out. 17 were when they came back, and I did know evangelism. That was the Africans. Uh, and they didn't do it, they showed it. And all of them came back saying, Christianity is serious, it works. Uh, so they planned a feast. So uh, they the pastor had given up his home for this, the best mud puff in the village for these three girls. 
and uh, they brought the goat in and cut its throat right there. Uh, they were city girls. They thought meat came in plastic bags, but uh, they had a different view at this point. And uh, yeah. some hours later, they fed us, and this particular tribe feeds on and guests. They bring the food in, and then they leave you to eat, so we'll come back a little later. Now, as honoured guests, we got all the best meat, the heart, the brain, uh, the kidneys, the liver, everything except what you call meat. Then the girls could not eat any of it. Fortunately, my son was with us, and we're European in origin, so we eat organ meats. Uh, even brain, before I knew it was dangerous when I was a child, um, and it's only dangerous occasionally. Uh, so we, we ate them. The girls ate all the rice and all the fruit that was available. Then while later the Africans came back and they were clearly a little disappointed that we didn't have better appetites, but they cleared it away. And then they sang beautifully, we sang badly, we got to know one another a little bit through French. So at least half the students were fluent in French, very fluent. Um, and we went to bed. The next morning we woke up and they don't eat breakfast, but they knew we did, and since we hadn't eaten it the night before, they set it up again. No refrigeration on the equator, but several thousand feet up. And at this point, the girls were in tears. I said, you want to go home, don't you? And they said, yes. And I said, tough, you can't afford the penalty, and your ticket's not due for five weeks. This is where we pray. This is where you put your faith on the line. Uh... Two of them were Christian. The third one, Julie, was not. And I sh we started to pray. Uh, prosaic Protestant prayers. You're not very good at prayer. There's not much poetry in it, not much real. It's all about what I want. But suddenly Julie started to pray. Uh, in French, it wasn't tongues. But it was very clear. Lord, help and then all I can say was the room became filled with joy. All five of us were in tears. We had no idea what had happened. But Julie said, I don't know what's happened, but I'm not, I'm not afraid anymore. Now, Julie had been a, an anxious student. Exams nearly destroyed her. That morning, that anxiety disappeared, and it didn't return Sunday did later, she got, she got serious psychiatric illness, but, but throughout the rest of her university career, she had no anxiety. When she got back, she was so amazed at what the Bible had in it. She would show 1 Corinthians 13 to her atheistic Quebecois colleagues and say, have you ever read anything like this? Amazing. So uh, when that was over, uh, Julie said, you're going to preach this morning in, in bad French. It would be best if you went English and I went to French and then to the tribal language. I said, are you willing? She said, yes. Church lasted about three or four hours, um, which is nothing to Africans. Uh, very, I, I love what, what went on and I didn't, I had lots of things to do. I, I left the students in the village. So the, the project was, I'll take you to Africa, dump you in a village for five weeks and pick you up at some point. They had no idea where they were even. Two days walk from the road, no running water, no electricity, living in a mud hut, a hole in the ground for a toilet. And it changed their lives. Uh, they had to weigh and measure every child. 
and unbelieving students when I, I visited them once during the trip to leave them with a copy of Helen Rosevear's Give Me This Mountain and uh, John Cleese's recording of the Screwtape Letters, which is the best recording of the Screwtape Letters there is. And uh, they got saved, a lot of them. Uh, the two brightest students in the year, uh, that particular year in the medical school, the competition was for third place. The first and second had gone and they were married to each other, the Wilsons. And they were very intellectual, secular. Uh, you would have thought the hardest nut to crack. They got saved. And when I uh, asked Mary, what made the difference? And she said, Christianity has such explanatory power. That's a really good conversion, isn't it? It's the only religion that answers all the questions. Now, there are nine questions that you ought to be posing to other people all the while, and you probably don't even know them, although they have been... You go back to the first writing there is, and they're there in, in uh, embryo, if you like. I remember the first time I used them in a lecture, and it was a secular lecture at the University of McGill Medical School, and I was talking about ethics, and at the end of the lecture I said, the bottom line is, there are nine questions that everyone has to answer. And if you don't have answers, you're going to have trouble. And the questions are, where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? There are overlapping questions. That's the first trio. The third one, how do I make sense of suffering? How do I come to terms with death? How can I possibly believe in justice? That's the second, second trio. And the last one, what can I know so that I know what I ought to believe? Everybody is a believer. There is no one in this world who's not exercising faith because you behave either as though there is a God or though there is not a God. And in fact, believing that there is a God is much more rational than believing there is no God because technically you can never prove that there is no God. It is impossible. It's what's known as a universal negative. If God wished to make himself invisible to you in all ways, he could do so, and you couldn't prove he's not there. You can't prove he's not there. But you can have plenty of evidence that he might be there. He doesn't go further, and there's a reason for that. The way you should think of your face and present it to others is, don't you want to be in a love story? Our faith is a love story. Now, if you want someone to love you, can you force them to do that? Of course not. You must leave the flowers on the doorstep, find out what they want to do, facilitate it. You have to understand the person you love or want to love, and you want to love you, and begin to feed the good things in them. That's what we do for one another in a real love story. That's what Christ is doing for us. But just so, he had to put aside his glory because if Jesus came and stood beside me now in a fraction of his real glory, what would happen to all of us? We'd be flat on our faces. Everybody in the Bible who had a close encounter with God didn't start clapping hands and jumping up and down, did they? What did they do? Think of Isaiah in the temple. Woe is me from a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of people of unclean lips. That's step one. Always has been, always will be. Uh, 
and we try to circumvent it because we want to feel happy without realizing it has preconditions. It's a love story. Surely, you can say to many people, hasn't anything ever happened to you that was gratuitous goodness and kindness and love? Where did it come from? Where do you find more? That's the way the story should and did spread. I mean, what was the first thing that is recorded in the Acts of the Apostles about Christians sent by unbelievers? It was this. Behold, these Christians love one another. Wow, how amazing. The first letter that I'm aware of, written by a Roman official about Christians, says basically this. He was writing to Rome, and he wanted to know what to do. He said, these Christians are not exposing their, Christ their children, and moreover, they are rescuing the exposed children of others. What should I do? Now, what he's talking about is infanticide. There wasn't an effective uh, way of a safe and effective way of stopping pregnancy until 1960, which started the worst revolution in the Western world, the pill, which most of your non-believing colleagues and some of you take all up because now we've reached a stage where many young women expect to have sex on their first date. That is not progress. When I went to medical school, the pill hadn't been invented. Uh, uh, I remember listening to the Reese lecture about the guy, by the guy who invented it. He was proud of the fact that he was divorcing sex and reproduction. Now we can be really happy. Of course, it's produced endless unhappiness because it's lost the love story and we have to get back. So these Christians, uneducated, but covering immediately the whole spectrum of society, which haven't yet managed in Alabama, I mean... You know what I'm talking about at that level. Uh, you have to go to other parts of the world for that to change. We're not intrinsically racist. Nicola, the child I talked talk to you about, we were in Jamaica when Jonathan was born. She was two and a half. And we went to the hospital and came back with Jonathan. And Nicola burst into tears. He's not black. <laughs> She did rouse me every Saturday morning with the malnourished children, all of whom were black, and she naturally presumed as a two-and-a-half-year-old that, well, all babies are black. And Jonathan wasn't, and she cried. Children are not racist. It's not intrinsic. CRT is rubbish uh, and can be rubbished very easily, and we may get round to showing you how to do that. So we inhabit a love story, and we often forget who the lover is. Uh, I like many of the things you did this morning singing. How many of you know the hymn, My Song is Love Unknown, Love to the Loveless Shown That They Might Lovely Be? Add it to your repertoire. There's a beautiful recording on YouTube by the small choir at St. Martin's in the Fields, uh, just accompanied by a flute and a clarinet, so I remember right, and it's about 11 singers. It is exquisitely beautiful. I want it played at my funeral. Uh, listen to it. And, uh, unfortunately, when you do it, if you do do it, you can do all the verses because they're not deeply enough into Christianity to realize. They used to write six verse hymns, you know, at least, and every verse of that one is worth looking at. But back to the main story. So, 
how do you talk about these things? You've got to have those nine questions down and you've got to have an answer to each of them. Now, there's not going to be time to do that here. Um, um, and I didn't do it for a long while. And so I thought I would tell you a little bit in order to give you a narrative to hang on to. Uh, narrative is important. Who has made the biggest change in world history? Which human being made the biggest change in world history? Come on. Hmm? It's Jesus. And people, even Christians don't immediately say Jesus. He only ever wrote things in sand. He didn't write anything else down. No notes from his lectures. Yet his stories have changed the world. And we still don't grasp what he's saying. And then he says to him, go and tell what I have done for you. Have your narrative. And first of all, it must be truthful, which means you've got to take the worst bit of your life that God has given and think about what you're going to do with that. You all love, judge not that you be not judged, right? We're non-judgmental. Read the whole verse. That is so disgracefully undefensible, indefensible. It goes like, judge not that you be not judged, for the judgment you give is the judgment you'll get. That's in Matthew. In Luke, he adds, good measure, pressed down and running over. You hypocrites. Why do you want to take a splinter out of your brother's eye when you've got a log in your own? And they say, Jesus has no sense in humor. First, get the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the splinter from your brother's eye. See what he's saying? When you become a Christian, what's the one thing Jesus takes away from you? Go on, say it. If you get it wrong, you'll remember the right answer forever. Pride, yes, but make that more generic. Sin, yeah. He takes them all. So he has bought your sins at what might be called an inflated price, right? They belong to him, not to you. Does he therefore have the right to use them? Yes, and that's where your pride comes in, doesn't it? Sharing your sins and what God has done for them is not going to make you proud. It's going to take a little courage to do it. And probably he'll set you up and you do it before you realize what's happened. And then you see, oh my goodness, this is the way it works. So in my case, uh, never bothered by drugs or alcohol, never tempted but women. That was a different matter. Uh, then my wife rescued me from perdition in that area and uh, over the years slowly got better. I never said anything about it. But every physician, at least in your church, there shouldn't be a physician who gives a talk to the young people's group on sexuality every year and sexually transmitted disease. It's your duty. They need to hear it taught by somebody who understands it and is honest and is undeniably speaking truth. And I got asked to do that in that church. So I did. Um, and I did all the usual things. There's plenty of material out there for you. And I got to the end, and as often happens in my life, my tongue gets a little bit ahead of my brain, and I say something that if I'd looked at it, I wouldn't have said it. And at the end, I said, uh, so the bottom line is, the best life you can have 
will mean being chased before marriage and faithful afterwards. I only wish I'd done it. And then I moved on very quickly, hoping that nobody had noticed what I said. But at, at two or three weeks later, about nine o'clock at night, there was a knock on our door, and it was the youth pastor's wife. And she, she was the only adult who had been at that meeting. And she said, I heard what you said, and I think you might be able to help me. I'm having an affair, and I need help to stop it. And I thought you might know me, John, might be non-judgmental. And we helped her, and she repented and told her husband, and he forgave her. But of course, the marriage will be different afterwards, won't it? Sin has consequences. They can be forgiven, but we can't. Only God has a, what I call a positive forgetter in. He says, I will remember them no more. We can't do that. We live with the consequences of what we have done. But anyway, one slip of the tongue produced fruit in two weeks' time. No pride on my part. So every now and again, I have to do that. Other people have other sins. The moment you start realizing they belong to Christ and not to you and talking about the way in which he's helped you to deal with it, they have a ministry and it's authentic. They're always talking about authenticity and they're not authentic, the people who are talking about it. Because we are all sinners and we all know that. As I said, little children coming into the world know what justice is and they know they're not getting it and they're not giving it. We're all sinners without exception. Why? That's about it. Well, we need to pass about it because they're in denial at the moment. The justice warriors, for instance, are totally ignorant people. Uh, I must say, I, I, I can be maliciously enjoy those situations, saying to myself, Lord, thank you for delivering them into my hands when they say something really stupid, which they do very quickly. You just feed them a little this and that, and they become totally incoherent very quickly. Uh, one thing we do at Augustine College, we started that because six of us who were, had gone these devious intellectual routes and then faith had come to life, uh, we watched people your age arrive at university with a faith, and I usually say to your parents, send your children to the average university from the average Christian home and expect them to lose their faith, their mind, and their virginity in random order in the first year, on average. And that's what happens to at least 70% of us. Because churches cease to be a place where truth is really preached all the way down the line. Uh, you would only, can you imagine any pastor agreeing to preach through every verse of 1 Corinthians? He would not want to deal with 1 Corinthians 7. Because it would upset a lot of people in church. So be it. We need to be upset. It's the entry into the kingdom. So, uh, I returned to faith with my marriage in, at the level of going to church and wanting my children to grow up as Christian. Uh, but there was no evidence of me being a Christian in the university. I was selfishly directed towards what I wanted to do. I was cynical and clever and manipulative. Uh, I knew how to get my own way. Uh, I think I'm probably unique. When I left the university, I'd gotten down my committee work to one committee. And to have to go to only one committee, that's quite an achievement. And that committee never met because I was the chairman. Uh, 
And when the Americans came to review uh, medical school, that committee got the best marks because it was the electives committee. And if a student wanted to do an elective in an accredited university, I have no grounds to say no, sign the document. That's 90 seconds, it didn't take me any time at all. Every now and again, I would persuade a student, you should take a year off. You're smart, go around the world. I can arrange that for you. And those days you could get around the world for about four or $5,000. And I could say, do you wanna do anything in Europe, Africa or the Middle East, India, Indonesia? Then go to Australia and New Zealand, you'll never get another chance to come back. And of course I sent them from mission hospital to mission hospital. One of us students went on that round. He ended up delivering Siamese twins in the middle of Africa as a medical student. My son-in-law did tyrodectomies as a medical student uh, because the surgeon at the hospital was way behind on his uh, paperwork. So he would sit in the OR and they got good hands and started off by small things and he ended up doing things like thyroidectomies and uh, gastric surgery as a medical student, no training. Wonderful experience. Um, and medical school is a rip-off. It's basically to keep teachers employed. The best students I've ever had, I would be happy uh, to have had them for six weeks and say, you can get to work. Just have somebody there around. You're smart, you'll do it well. One of my best friends went to one lecture in the whole of medical school. He went the first day and said, this is rubbish. I can do better from the book. And he was publishing the Journal of Physi Physiology already, so it really didn't matter. He still is my age, in his 80s, and he still has an endowed chair at Georgetown. Uh, they hired him to run nephrology. He said, uh, to do the dialysis program, I'd only dialyzed dogs up to that point, but it, it's much the same, no problem. Uh, no, it, it is, the way we do it is ridiculous. And at some point, we will go back to apprenticeship, which is the right way to learn medicine, in my view. You, you will not remember any biochemistry. I had to teach it to you, a total waste of time. Uh, I mean, it's like, to do it properly, it's like learning a new language. So you're not gonna do that in six weeks or whatever it is, or even a year. Uh, the only thing you might remember is the Krebs cycle, and you'll never meet a patient who doesn't have a Krebs cycle. <laughs> no Krebs cycle, you're dead. Metabolic disease is very interesting, but it's very minute, and it's fun. I mean, it's if you've got the sore mind that God gives me, a bit quirky and unusual. I mean, you get lovely moments. Like there's one particular disease that's very, very rare that interests me. Uh, you get a baby who doesn't grow very well, smells, unhappy, sk terrible skin. You still love him, he's your baby, and you go to every pediatrician for 50 miles around, and nobody knows what's wrong with him. And eventually they get to me, you know, the quirky doctor where all these things end up. And mum walks in, I look at the left and I say, oh, I know what this is. And I say, I just want a question before I start, for my own interest. Does he have a red rash around his anus? And she looks at me, yes. <laughs> I say, I know what's wrong with him. He'll be better tomorrow. He's got acrodermatitis intrahepatica, which is a congenital failure of the absorption of zinc. 
Um, you need to recognize it because giving zinc tablets won't do it because the amount you need is enough to poison you or me. So you have to have courage as well to treat them. But you're God to that mum after that. You can't imagine what it's like to be a mum who said a, a child has been sick for three or four years and in 24 hours you've got a normal, normal child. Uh, you'll see it occasionally, a, a secondary version of it in, in uh, ICU, same sort of phenomenon. Uh, but those kinds of things take time to learn and time to do. Uh, and the book is this thick, you know, genetics and metabolic disease, Charlie Scriver. Uh, nobody knows it all except Charlie. Uh, but it's interesting stuff. Uh, but I can recognize a baby as a metabolic disorder. I don't know what it is. It's going to take six weeks to sort that out. The first time I came across a case of carnitine deficiency, I'd even forgotten where carnitine fitted in the metabolic pathways, you know. I'd forgotten about it completely. I never forgot about it again after that. So we are supposed to be like that. So we're supposed to be like, well, my favorite description of what we're supposed to be like is from Gerard Manley Hopkins. Any of you read any of his poetry? No, no, you're denied an education again. But this line, Christ plays in 10,000 places. Lovely in eyes and lovely in limbs, not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I like to watch my 20 grandchildren playing at the farm and think, that's how God likes to look at us when they're playing well. Children playing well, like these two have been. They're delightful, aren't they? Children, when they're in that state, are utterly delightful and utterly unself-conscious, really. And that's how God sees us. Christ sees us. He is playing through us in 10,000 places. It's all a game, but a wonderful game. And we already, uh, when you stood up to talk about folks on the family, I didn't know that story in that, that way. And it wasn't the only one that came out of that conference. I had a book come through the post some years later uh, about the four levels of happiness, which I said, I'll teach you and I must do that. And then we're going to have to finish this session. I have got about a tenth of the way I wanted to, to go, but you've got a timetable this morning, I know. Uh, but uh, a book came through the post. I hadn't ordered it, and it was called The Four Levels of Happiness. When I opened it, it was by a, a Jesuit called Oscar Lufabro, if I remember rightly. But when I opened it, the book was dedicated to Father Robert Spitzer and myself. And what on earth is going on here? They were not the only ones in that audience. There were a couple of Catholic physicians. No, Orthodox physicians, actually, sorry. Um, and, and they were sitting listening. And it so happened their priest had a terrible accident and was in hospital, depressed. And they went back and taught him the four levels of happiness. He subsequently wrote to me several times and published some of my stuff in Orthodox literature. And they got to know Robert Spitzer, from whom I got the whole story. It's a lovely sequence covering the whole span of the Christian church. And it's the best pre-evangelism tool I know. So I'm going to teach it to you, to, teach it to you now so that I don't forget to do it very quickly. There is a, a full-length tape on it, I think, a CD, whatever you want, talk on my website. Um, but everybody that you meet every day wants to be happy, right? 
nobody puts up their hand saying, I want to be unhappy. Um, the trouble is, as a culture, we used to have a good understanding of what happiness is, now we don't. And there are the four levels, um, I first heard them from Robert Spitzer, who was um, president of Gonzaga University. And after the, listening to him, I, I said to him afterwards, that was very good, but ordinary people won't understand all those Greek words. Um, can I make an earthy version for medical students without you being upset? He said, of course not, for the kingdom. Go ahead. So when you've learned it from me, you can go to Robert Spitzer to get the one with the Greek verbs, because it goes that far back. It's not combined to Christianity. People who were thoughtful understood that we were made this way as writing began 6,000 years before Christ. The first things immediately come into these kinds of questions. So, uh, level one is what I call animal happiness. What do we share with the animals? What forms of satisfaction do we and the animals share? Well, that's easy, isn't it? It comes down to food and sex. The only difference is we as human beings can wreck almost any good thing. Animals, by and large, don't. So I don't anymore, but for years we had about 20 or 30 head of Hereford cattle on the farm. Had to get rid of them last year. I couldn't run around the snow anymore. I said, I've had enough of that. So currently we're working out what we do with the farm. But my cows were perfectly happy. Uh, I couldn't build a fence they couldn't push down if they were in the mood to do so. But a little electric shock or a, a cedar fence, just not, they wouldn't bother. Once or twice a year they'd get out for some reason or another. I'd get them back. Um, as long as they had food, water, and a very occasional bull, they were fine. Uh, poor old guy, we get one new one every year because the guy breeding them and every now and again the paperwork got wrong, so we got a decent bull for no no cost, you know. Uh, the poor old guy would, would be ready to go to slaughter at the end of the season, you know. Uh, he was worn out, poor fellow. Uh, but that's cows. No problem with food, no problem with sex. But of course, when we feed cows, when the back started foreclosing on dairy farmers and everything was theirs, the farmers made sure all the cows died because all you had to do was leave them with the way we finish them in North America. Cows are not made for a high corn diet. And if you allow them free access to it, they kill themselves with liver failure in no time flat, putting down fat in their liver. Routinely in North America, uh, the liver is condemned as unfit for human consumption. If you drop it on the floor, it just goes in scatters because there's so much fat in it, like fatty to foie gras. Uh, our cattle, Gross said, they're perfectly good livers. Uh, we could eat them. But what do you do when you've turned the happiness of both food and sex into an unhappiness? Because you know the people who crow about their sexual prowess, they don't have happy lives, do they? People in Hollywood don't seem to be able to maintain a relationship for more than about six weeks by the time they've been there for a year or two. And they call that success. It's not. It's total failure. Whereas people who marry virgins and are virgins themselves, they're never going to be able to say something that you can't take back like you're not as good in bed as X because there was no X. And you don't go to bed to have sex. 
when you've got children, you go to bed tired, but you start talking and you end up having sex. That's the way it is. And it's loving. And you don't have to get kinky to keep you going. Uh, that's what God intended. So what do you do when you get to unhappiness one? So every happiness will map to an unhappiness except the fourth. Well, you have to go up a notch towards something we can do and the animals can't. We are capable of abstract thought. No animal is. Animals don't have, uh, they don't, your dog doesn't love you. Your dog knows that you're the source of food. Uh, you're just feeding an instinctive thing uh, and a training behaviorist type thing. Behaviorism works to the age of seven in humans and then it's over. Uh, so you go to university and what Socrates wanted you to do was every day as you get home after school, you'd say, I'm wiser than I was this morning. Have you ever said that? You haven't used the word wisdom because the university's forgotten the word exists. You can go, you will go through your old, old medical school and write to me if somebody talks to you about wisdom. Because what is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. And they don't want that. So they've got a truncated understanding with the fundamental foundation block removed. It's not an accident that science as we know it only happened in Europe. Nowhere else, not in China, not in India, nowhere else, just in Europe. Why? I couldn't take the results of science to Africa and make it work. That's what upset me. I, as I said, we left ja Jamaica in 79 and we went through 110 pounds two year olds and saved every single one. We'd done the science and got it right. So we'd taken, a, it took 25 years from a 50% mortality rate to total success. And I'd never lost a malnourished child since. If I get a malnourished child in my hands and can keep it alive for an hour, I'll make it better. Um, but couldn't do it in Africa. And I knew it wasn't working because I was watching the literature. There's still not a, a nutrition education program from Africa that works. Uh, and I know why now, I think. Um, I've yet to go to a mission hospital doing it right because it's so counterintuitive, including Tenwick. Uh, I went because of those prayers, you know, when I called my dad and said, we're going to Africa. And he said, I've been waiting 45 years to hear you say that. I, I knew I was going for reasons that I didn't understand because I didn't expect to succeed. I wasn't that arrogant. I could teach my children to do it, and I could train nurses to do it, and they would do it, but only as long as I was there. I came back eight months later, and I could already measure the decline in the program. And one of the nurses I'd trained and had his own child die of malnutrition. That was an insult. And I said to him, what on earth happened? And he told me he was going to lie because he looked at the ground and not at me. And so he gave me the answer he knew I wanted that we didn't feed him properly. But I knew that wasn't what he believed, but I didn't know what he did believe. Now, the guy running the program for me that I trained had a degree in nutrition from an African university, but he also didn't inhabit a story that would support science, but he was a little further along. And I said, Karume, go and find out what he really believes. He was back in two or three minutes. He knew. What do you think the answer was? He believed that an evil spirit had taken his child's appetite away. So he had rationally 
give the money to the witch doctor to get rid of the evil spirit. Don't laugh at that entirely rational religion. There's precious little evidence of a God of love. If half your children die before the age of five, you have the worst governments in the world and your crops fail at random. Where's a God of love in that story? Not immediately obvious, but the church is flourishing there and not here. Because when God just sets to work, it doesn't matter what the external conditions are. He knows what he's doing. And the story is a big one. So what do you do? Now, that's a story I can't tell you now, but essentially, uh, I'd, my wife likes me to be doing good. And I was sitting around that year, uh, not doing good from her point of view, not saving lives. And I said, look, I'm not here primarily for the immediate clinical condition. I'm trying to understand malnutrition because it's a contributing factor to over 50% of the kids who die before maturity. So you get rid of that, we make a huge difference in health. But I don't know why. And she said, well, sitting around doing nothing won't help. And I said, yeah, that's what you think I'm doing, because that's what you think thinking is doing. And we had a good old-fashioned family row. We could do that very well. Uh, but she won. She said, you could at least do a Bible study with the graduates from university in the village and doing nothing. And I think you should do the one you're doing working on in Deuteronomy. I think it's important. Female intuition. I said, all right. And then, uh, so, I started a Bible study on Deuteronomy. Uh, because you send an African to a university, he gets a degree, comes back with a white collar, and he won't get his hands dirty anymore, but there are no white collar jobs in the village. So he's a total parasite. We set out to do good and we make everything worse. Um, but they loved it. Uh, we had to start in English. Both my wife and my son who were with me spoke fluent French, and my French is adequate but bad and an awful accent. Uh, and then it would go to Swahili, which Jonathan could handle, but the rest of us couldn't. And then the tribal language, which is tonal, so you're a fool if you try to speak it because you're liable to end up calling your grandmother a cow. You know, I can't hear the difference. It's tonal. And of course, they don't know it's tonal, so they don't know how to help you. Nobody who speaks a tonal language knows that it is. And then there was a miracle. Uh, after a couple of weeks, one of the guys, it would be so much better if we could go from English to the tribal language, because we go so slowly, which was a good thing, actually. And then one of them said, we can. And amazingly, a guy who'd been born in that area had gone to Tanzania. He was a Muslim and got educated in English, so he was fluent. But like many Muslims in Africa, he had, a little while before this point, multiple dreams about Jesus. He was discontented with Islam. And a dream said, go and talk to the Christians. Now, Mohammed says when you meet, the Quran says when you meet the infidel, if he will not convert, kill him. People of the book can just become slaves, but kill everyone else. So Africans would be killed. And he went and heard the gospel for the first time with the Spirit working on him. And he said, that's the truth. And he was baptized, joined the church Christian. A few months later, he was married. He had another dream, saying, go back to your birthplace. No reason given. And he was on the opposite side of Lake Tanganyika. It was about a thousand miles long. So he walked approximately, well, a thousand kilometers because he didn't have a lot of money. 
up to Wujimbura and then down the other side. And he, he'd found a, a Quaker mission and he was being helpful, but he didn't know why he was there. And then they went and fetched him, Mapendo. Ms. Love, what a lovely name to have. And he became my translator. Um, within a few weeks, I ended up with probably the most memorable talk I've ever given uh, to 6,000 people out of doors. The, the tribal elders learned what I was doing with the young men and they pulled me out of a clinic for a couple of hours, nobody complained, and made me explain to them what I'd been doing. And then they dismissed me. And shortly after that, they said, we've decided you can't just do this for the young men. Everybody needs to hear it. Uh, the whole tribe converted to Christianity following the Rwanda revival in the 1930s, but there's been no teaching. So I ended up teaching Deuteronomy 6 and its immediate context to 6,000 people out of doors. Uh, it had a row of D-cells this long to run the megaphone. I didn't have to use that. Mapendo had to do that. I just had to tell him what I wanted to say and translate it. The very next day, uh, my wife was being driven from A to B by a driver we have every year, a guy who would do Formula One if he was here. Uh, he could drive. He's, he knew where his wheels were on an African road within millimeters. We'd come up to a, a, a two-log, rounded log bridge and say, that's okay, and drive across. Uh, no woman could do that. You know, you can be sexist at this point. Uh, women are much better than men in terms of peripheral vision. Fortunately, it was a woman who sorted this out. But men are better than you are at space. So if you're a male and your wife is in the car and she says something about what's happening ahead or to the side, believe her, she's seen it before you, milliseconds. But if you're coming up to a gap and she says, slow down, you can hit the accelerator just for fun. <laughs> Uh, that's the truth. They are amazing. At the top end, and this guy, uh, Abdallah, would, would have been at that end. I once had Sterling Moss as a, a patient when I was a medical student. He'd been brought in from Silverstone where he'd had a crash. He came in unconscious. He woke up the next day, but this was 1959, 60, something like that. The question was, what damage had been done to his brain because Formula One, you've got to have pretty good reflexes. Well, fortunately, we had a very good woman, a clinical psychologist. She said, well, obviously, the usual standards don't apply. We've got a subgroup here, but all the other F1 drivers are visiting him. I'll see if they'll help me by doing the tests as well. So she ended up with a very interesting paper of the uh, psychometrics on Formula One racing drivers. What do you think their average IQ of a racing driver is? Girls only. What would you guess that a guy who drives Formula Ones, what sort of IQ would you think he has? 80, perhaps? To be so stupid? And actually, they're over 140. They are incredibly smart. If you listen to people like, uh, uh, like Sterling Moss in his day, many of them went on to run talk shows and that sort of thing, and very witty, very quick. Um, and when he came round and he got to talk to these guys about just what it's like, and they said, well, when you get a new boy on the patch, you have to know how good he is. So to find out, they will drive up behind a new boy at 120 miles per hour on the back straight or more, 
and put their front tyre on his back tyre, just enough to get a puff of smoke in the mirror so they can find out how cool he is. They've got a nose, but they can do that at 150 miles an hour. That's reflexes of a very high order. Uh, that's why they get, if they have a crash, somebody's going to get fined. We couldn't start an F1 race, could we? All lined up and you all start together and you're all fighting to get to the front. And if you touch anyone, you'll be fined. They, sometimes they, they touch on purpose because and the points can be complicated. It's, a crash is worth it to take him out. I sacrifice for my team, but they'll get fined. That's the world of Formula One. And that's the level of intelligence. So those kinds of people are there. They find their fulfillment in using those abstract abilities that God has given them, or in that case, physical abilities. University was meant to be the same. You're meant to be wiser. And it's not happening. Uh, I came across a lovely example. Of, you can use this a lot. It's Alexander Pope, and I, I've never seen it before, but he said, you should always admit when you're wrong because it's another way of saying I'm wiser today than I was yesterday. Isn't that brilliant? Every time you fail to admit that you're wrong, you fail to grow in wisdom. Because in admitting that you're wrong, you're now saying, I know better. The person who won't say I'm wrong is condemning themselves to stupidity in the long run. That's our world. Most of the errors come from, this is a phrase you can write down, the disordering of the goods. That doesn't mean much to most of you, but it means something to you. That's good. I'm not talking about goods in terms of how many cars I have. I'm talking about philosophical goods. Tolerance, love, justice, honor, these are all goods, good things, but they have no material existence, right? Now, the world that you inhabit stretches these things out and you choose which one you want to be first. How many of you would be willing to stand up in front of your class and say, I am intolerant? None of you, but you should be. I love it. This was my turning point in a way. Uh, as I told you, I, I wasn't an active Christian in the university till into my 40s. One of the turning points eventually came into the first thing I published in this area. This little talk, basically. I have a copy of it in front of me. But the, the educationalists in our university had the temerity to send around to all the professors something they couldn't publish and shouldn't have published because incoherent, but saying that I should be morally neutral in the clinic. And I was so angry, steam was rising. And I sat down at my computer to work out my anger. And at the end of the afternoon, I'd written, uh, well, this little booklet. It wasn't in a booklet term. I had just a paper and I felt better because I thought I'd taken the whole idea apart. And I sent it to a friend to read. He was the president, uh, the CEO of the Canadian version of CMDA. And he was an Irishman originally and that dangerous, you know, they can do impulsive things. And uh, I sent it to him to read and he published it without my permission. But only in the CMDA journal, only 1,500 copies or so in each edition. 
so I didn't bother too much. Uh, but it was a summer program, and if you're like me and you end up at a cottage and it's raining and you can't find anything else to read, you'll be reading the cornflakes box before you give up, so to speak. So shortly before the cornflakes box, they came across this in focus, and it went around the world. I published in major journals and uh, reasonable citation links, but I still get stuff about this 50 years later. Uh, one of the other talks, this one, turned up on a few weeks ago. I didn't know it. On YouTube, I was on YouTube, and suddenly my own name pops up, and it's this talk. And it's been on the, it was recorded in the University of Wisconsin somewhere like 20 years ago. Uh, and it, it's fascinating. It's not the sort of blip thing where you suddenly go viral, but it's had a continuous consumption. So 50,000 people or something like that over 20 years, that's not huge. Except they're saying the same things about it all the way through. Why don't I hear this in medical school? The four basic foundation blocks of medicine are transcendence, morality, the sanctity of life, and conscience. And they come from Hippocrates. And we're trashing all four of them and have been doing so for a long while. We're wondering why the system is falling apart. So happiness, two, turning your life forward, becoming wiser, doesn't happen. So instead, within weeks of arriving at medical school, you're anxious about the next exam, right? You live in recurrent chronic anxiety about performance. You shouldn't because if Christ wants you to get somewhere, you can keep his rules and be sure you'll get there. Yeah. I was never anxious, but there are other reasons for that. Uh, that sort of thing, I just take it as nonsense. Get on with it. It's not a problem. But for a lot of people, anxiety is huge. So every universe, every medical school has to have one prof who's a bit like a Catholic priest. You can go to them and say, look, I'm, I'm in trouble. I'm using alcohol and drugs. I'm so anxious. And mindless sex too. But they don't look upon that as wrong anymore. Uh, and he will then help you through and it won't appear on your transcript. Because when you've been in medical school six weeks, we can't afford to fail you. We're wasting money. We've already spent too much on you. You've got to make something out of you. Even if it's only a dermatologist, it's something, you know. Uh, anyway, that's one of the most wanted jobs because you can make a fortune. You can modify every rash that comes along and you can't cure any of them. What could be better for an income? Uh, so that's unhappiness too. The anxiety which COVID has made immensely worse. What, what do you do next? You go up to the next one, which is happiness three. That is doing good things simply because they are good and for no other reason. When we started taking medical students to Africa, it was obviously a good thing they wanted to do, and Sally did all the work, and I sort of pushed it along. And that's gratifying. It's satisfying. We're made to do that. The best example is children. And nobody can pretend that having children is pure continuous joy. It's not. Uh, but the little blighters have got you under their thumb very quickly, haven't they? They can get you out of bed and down to the emerge at will, whenever they wish, if unless you're really tough. Um, because you love them. They capture your, your heart, if you're anything like a human being. So that's happiness three. 
And most people stop there. But that comes to an end because it's a need to be needed love. And Christ has got more than that for us. In the end, you're not going to be needed. We all leave helpless with nothing material. Your mind goes, your health goes, your marriage goes. Uh, nobody wants you. Loneliness is huge in the elderly now, isn't it? Uh, the church, hospitality is going to be a major factor in the rebuilding of true evangelism. Uh, if you're not doing it, there's something wrong. Uh, Kelly and his lordship back there have done it very well over the years. Uh, we did it too, uh, but we did it by default, so to speak. Uh, we have to be pushed into everything, except Sally understood. But over the years, medical students came because she's a good cook. But what they really came for was the arguments. They came from good families, but their families never argued about anything. They'd never seen a family that ended up with more books and plates on the table sometimes because everybody was absolutely sure they knew who said what when. And so they'd go and get the book to prove it. We'd find out who had got it right, usually me. Um, <laughs> but I had a flying start on them. Uh, my third daughter, the one I've already talked about, she said, I'm going to look after you when you're old and I'm going to win an argument with you every day. <laughs> But I, I said, that won't matter because I won't be, be aware that you won the argument. So, but there's nothing more satisfying than really intense discussion without any pride on the line. It's wonderful. When I travel, I, I say to physicians, if you can get some of your non-Christian friends into your house just for a meal and talk, they won't leave till nine o'clock or 11 o'clock or midnight uh, because they have a hole in their heart that's God-shaped. It's worth having, how many of you, have any of you read Augustine's Confessions? Just the old guy at the back, you see. It's worth buying for the first paragraph alone because at the end of that first paragraph, Augustine says, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. That's the first tell it as it happened conversion story in literature in the fifth century. Uh, I have a copy of Augustine's Confessions by my bed all the while, and two or three times a month I'll read a paragraph. Ideal book to have by your bed as a medical student because you can read a paragraph and there's enough for you to start thinking about and you will be asleep before you stop thinking about it. But it will be in your soul. You'll grow and you'll go through. I mean, it's a bit neurotic about stealing apples in the first chapters or so, but I mean, he nearly gets to quantum physics at one place, and he has such memorable phrases. He said, I know what memory is and what time is until somebody asks me. And his discussion of memory is fascinating and fabulous. And he's a Christian. And he formed the Western world. The city of God is what made the West possible. Now, so when you've got to unhappiness three, you're no longer useful. The only thing left is God. And, uh, and that does not go away. And I introduce you to Diane Comp. You will have the opportunity to get your own happiness for stories. Never, ever refuse the opportunity to sit by the bed of a dying person who is a Christian. Don't refuse it for anyone, but especially for a Christian, because things happen. The 
eternal meets the transient, and you see it. And one of the wonderful things that's happening with uh, these long periods of people being off normal function, being artificially kept alive, and actually having out-of-body experiences are producing all sorts of evidence that nobody can deny. My favorite one is probably a woman who was at a, uh, an operation go wrong, and they took them hours to get it right, and she was outside her body, the standard thing, feeling as though you were floating on the ceiling watching people operate on you. And she was up there so long she drifted out of the OR and she had this memory of drifting along the side of the hospital. And eventually they got her back. And she was talking to an unbelieving surgeon and she said, strange, I remember there, were, there was a pair of running shoes on a windowsill and they were, you know, orange or something memorable. And I said, I'll fix that. Of course he didn't. When he got there, there they were. She had not been out there, certainly not at the third floor, but she had. Uh, Out-of-body experiences are real. Um, we, we have some sense of them every now and again, uh, the sense that you're not alone in various places. And Africans have much more sense of the strength of our spirits as Christians than we have, for instance. Uh, but be there, especially children. And Diane Comp will help you with some examples of that. So I probably share the four levels of happiness with every third person I sit next to on an airplane. It's, it's I, I sit down in my seat and say, Lord, if you want something to happen, start it. And I mean, when you sit down, you normally say good morning or whatever it is. You're going home, going away. What do you do? That's the sequence that always happens. And... Then they ask me what I do, and I say, well, it's a bit difficult to describe. A shorthand would be that I talk about ethics, culture, faith, and public policy, and how we need to fit them together and get them on the same square if we're going to survive. I say, that's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? And I said, yeah. Um, what does that involve? I said, well, one of the things it involves is understanding happiness better. Everybody wants to be happy, don't they? And then the four levels of happiness starts. The typical response is, I say, look, I always say this, I say, are you interested? And if they say yes, I say, look, it's a warning. This is dangerous. It can change your life. So all you have to say is stop, and I will stop. No one has ever said stop. The most usual response, one was a chief executive of some American company not long ago. At the end of it, as we came into Chicago, she said, thank you. That's the most interesting flight I've ever had. Now, I don't know what's going to happen, but you've already seen things are happening that you have no idea about, and that's the fun of it all. I mean, uh, what happens to me at this stage of my life? Anybody who didn't enjoy it would be lying. What? Every week, some other story like the ones you've heard this morning turns up. Uh, that's the way the gospel goes all over the world. Uh, I've been recognized by my voice in the middle of an airport in Africa. Uh, can you imagine that? I mean, we'd been, uh, been to Zimbabwe and then Malawi to visit Joanna. We went to the airport in Blantyre, right in the middle of Africa, southern Africa. Uh, 
We went through the laughable security that hasn't worked in 10 years, but they put the bags through because Americans feel better. Um, and when, when you got to the other side, uh, uh, the airport was bought, built when the biggest plane was a DC-3 uh, with, you know, 30 people in it. Uh, now there's bigger planes, but they haven't built it. They're just rebuilding the airport last now. So we got through, Sally got the last seat and I was standing up. I'm getting old, long flights, I get achy necks and things like that. I am, I, you taught me today, my problem is I don't have enough Holy Spirit because I can't get my hands any higher than that. But, um, no, I think you've got it wrong. Um, I, it means I don't have to go through that machine. Uh, so uh, I was being a bit of a curmudgeon. And the guy sitting next to Sally put a seat on the back and put a bag on the seat. And after a minute or two, I said, so is anyone coming for that seat? And he looked up, up from his Kindle and said, oh, I'm so sorry. And he moved it back and said, please sit down. So I sat down and to make him feel a bit better, I said, I don't notice, don't notice what's happening around myself either when I'm reading my Kindle. And he stopped dead and said, we met. And I said, two white guys in the middle of Africa, not very likely. And he said, no, I don't recognize you. It's your voice. And he saw for a minute. And he said, you gave some lectures in Cape Town in 1998, didn't you? I said, around then, yes, <laughs> in the medical school. I said, yes. Uh, he said, the reason I don't recognize you is I wasn't at the lectures, I was on an elective. But my best friend, Ben, uh, oh, I said, I remember Ben. Well, he recorded all those six talks. And when I got back, he gave me a set of tapes. That's how old it is, 1998. And he said, they changed my life. Uh, I live in England now because the violence in South Africa got to my wife too much and we had to leave. But the best three weeks of my year are the three weeks I spend in Malawi helping at a mission hospital. And if I hadn't met you on tape, that would never have happened. Could you not not enjoy that? I mean, no, you have to enjoy it, don't you? That's just a pure gift. I was being a bit of a curmudgeon saying, oh, I'm fed up with this traveling. And basically it was a wrap up over the knuckles saying, you are having a great time. Enjoy it. That happened twice more on that trip in the next month, at which point I gave up. One of them, the guy I wanted to talk to me, even had the name Augustine. I sort of got the message at that point, you know. You're not yet completed your training, so I'm still at it. That's our story. Don't live in a lesser one than that. Everything you, every time you choose something that is not compatible with what you say you believe. God will let you have it. But the Spanish describe what's involved. God says to each of us, take what you want and pay the attached price. Everything's got a price on it. And with this I finish because I want you, something you do need to write down. Tom Sowell's three rules about looking at any proposal in politics or policy or the like. Uh, if they'd been applied, the woke nonsense would never have happened. CRT would have died in utero. It, it all a result of getting these things wrong. The disordering of the goods, uh, the top good for us is truth, not loyalty. Black Lives Matter is it would be inverted racism if you followed it through. It's still racism. And you, you, you really think you're going to help the situation by making little white boys and girls feel guilty and neurotic and hopeless for the, the rest of their lives? Is that going to give you any satisfaction? No, of course it's not. It's not the way it works. So Tom Sowell is back.
He's the best black intellectual in North America by my count. Brilliant, brilliant man. And you can listen to him on Uncommon Knowledge at the Hoover Institute. Uh, he's 90. He's written three books since he was 80. I have at least six of his books on my shelf. And I read his book on the intellectuals regularly. Uh, absolutely brilliant. But he says, whenever you are asked to look at policy in any form, whether it be in hospital or in politics or wherever, you say, we need to change and do something else. He said, do three things. First, write down, compared to what? That includes staying where we are now. It might be the best that's available to us as human beings. Then the proposal that this person wants or the proposal this person wants, lay them out. Now, look and see whether you can see any consequences. Well, we know the consequences of our own world. It's the world we've got. But we can see how they came out of others, and I haven't got round to teaching you that yet. Um, but they don't even think about that. It was predictable when they didn't listen to the best academics who were epidemiologists with the great Barrington uh, declaration and got COVID completely wrong because there was no, no humanity in it. And they were told that at the beginning. Only Sweden did it right, and Sweden, that it was, more, it was the most neurotic place in the world before COVID, now it's the least. Because they didn't lock down, they didn't wear masks, they told those who were vulnerable to guard themselves. It's the best way to go. Uh, and life went on, particularly children were not masked, but they're going to have neurotic children who missed learning points. How do you expect a child to learn to speak well when they can't see lips? It's ridiculous. Uh, and the particular... The, the outcome is inevitable. And then finally, show me the data. And if there is no data, don't move till you've got some data. We know how to collect data. We know how to sort it out. And we, we're getting the data now showing how bad COVID was, and it was predictable, but it was manipulated so that it didn't happen. Data was fudged. It's all there. And it's going to come out. The truth will come out, especially when enough people around there are determined to make it happen. And you've got to lead in that respect. It applies to the church, it applies to your family, it applies to wherever. You don't just have a good idea and say, well, do it intuitively. See, this is what's happened, that you have become victims of your own feelings. Now, feelings are wonderful or awful, but you don't build your life on that. Feelings are God's province. I told you already, God gave me the best feelings I've ever had in my life for two months in the refugee camps, in the worst places in the world. You can do that. But he used my mind that he had trained beforehand to make that possible. It doesn't say in Romans that you must be transformed by the renewal of your feelings, does it? You are to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Have you had any mind food re recently? What disciplines do you have in your life? Uh, the kids who take our eight-month program, you've had quite a lot of medical students who get through, uh, about 10 of them, who get into medical school and slowly you begin to realize that 90% of your patients are going to have a spiritual problem at the basis of their disease. You don't get overweight without eating too much. It's not possible. But the, our problem is not with our feelings. Our problem is with the will. We have no problem of knowing what good and evil is. Everybody does know it. I've demonstrated that to you. We can't do anything about it. We are prisoners. So their idea of justice is justice is 
uh, their idea of freedom is nobody interfering with me. That's not the Christian definition of freedom. What's the Christian de definition of freedom? Do you have one? Probably not. Here's the best one. Freedom is not the freedom to do what you wish, but the freedom to do what you ought. That's Lord Acton, 100 years ago. Got it dead right. The freedom to do what you... We all know what we ought to do. Our problem lies with the will, which has to be trained. And that is not a quick process. You bless most of you grew up in Christian homes. Much of your will has been trained in that direction, so you're ahead of the curve. Uh, statistically, historically, when Christianity comes to a new culture, it's going to be 200 years before Judeo-Christian values. I hate that term. It's intrinsically subjective. It's, but we don't have a good word. But these Christian ideas of good and evil, uh, the ten divine intolerances, I like to call them, because that sort of rubs salt in the wound, doesn't it? When God wanted to tell the Jews how to, to flourish, he gave them t ten things he would not tolerate. You can rewrite the Ten Commandments that way. And he said, if you obey these intolerances, you will flourish and you will have freedom. Legitimate intolerance is the basis of a stable society. And you can see that immediately now, can't you? You're in the middle of what happens when we lose that idea. And it's only going to get worse till the church comes to life, and that means a lot of repentance. That's where we're at. So if you find yourself stuck, do think about taking nine months, eight months off. With electives, you can even get it down to about half a year if you manipulate your electives. One of the first students who did that, it was his mother who heard me and persuaded him to come. He's now finishing his training in ICU, brilliant guy, and got a degree in ethics along the way. But he went from us to pre-med uh, at a very feminist school, and he stopped the, the first professors in the first lecture with the first slide, first PowerPoint. It was on biopsychosocial medicine, and the first, that was the title, and then click. There are no absolutes. His hand went up. The guy looked and said, you have a problem, young man? He said, yes, sir. Is that sentence internally consistent? Now, about 10% of the class laughed. The rest didn't understand what had happened. <laughs> the guy was smart. Uh, I must have been asleep when I made that slide. I will fix it. And he was marked. But it wasn't over. Uh, the next thing that happened was, because it's a feminist school, the guys, not the girls, but the guys have to get a girl to do a joint presentation with them. The girls can do girl on girl if they want. That's called justice. Um, and a Muslim girl came up to uh, uh, Nathan and said, will you do your joint presentation with me? And he said, I'm a Christian, you're a Muslim. Do you really want to do that? And she said, yes, I've watched you, and particularly I admire your courtesy towards women. Could we do it on some aspect of sexuality? And he said, well, and I introduced him to Reichardt's economic analysis of the pill, which is brilliant. And he gave it a paper, it's called The Bitter Pill, and you should have a copy, but you, you ought to have a box of really good papers that you don't sort, you just keep them. It needs to stack about that thick. So that when you're bored, you flick through it and you find a paper that you've read and you knew was important, but you haven't really mastered it because you can't talk about it. 
and you read it in that way. My wife is always trying to file everything. I say, stop it. <laughs> I need that pile unfiled. It's brilliant. It can trigger things. And uh, Reichardt is in that pile. And what he did was show that the pill has actually had the net effect economically of transferring money from women and children to men. Not exactly what the feminists want, but that's what it's done. So they worked up this paper, and then at the end of term, he had to present. Now, of course, lots of students, so, uh, lots of profs, and when they got to the room assigned to them, of course, they had to present this paper to the guy that Nathan had made a fool of on day one. And uh, he said to the Muslim girl, he said, look who it is. He's not going to give a good mark. And she's a lovely girl. She said, I don't care. This has been really good. And bless him, he was a good guy. When they'd finished, he said, he gave them maximum marks. He said, you deserve the marks for courage alone to take that subject in this school. And you did it excellently. So you're worth what you've got. And I do remember what you did. And I, I, you were right. Why would I not? award you marks for that. There are good guys still out there. And when they see it, the light shines in the darkness, so it will shine more clearly. Uh, so if you're not capable, uh, think about taking eight months off and coming to us. Uh, the kids who take that course at Augustine, they have a 70% probability that their faith will still be flourishing when they come out of training. That's incredibly high. We ought to have people queuing at the door, but we have no money. I'm the only advertising we can afford. Uh, you couldn't write a business plan for what we've done because uh, it has no right to succeed. But it's God's project, not mine. So we actually put into we didn't want to do it. So we said, if we go into the red, we, we close. But every time we've approached that, and it's three times, God has sent some money along. The first time blew me out of the water. We were two of the guys who resigned. Said, "Look, we said we'd resign when this happened, and we're going to go bankrupt this this summer. Uh, we should plan now." And we said, "Well, we um, we haven't talked about it. We haven't prayed about it. We ought to do that at least." The two left, and I ended up running college from then on, in name only. I don't run anything. Uh, and shortly afterwards, a guy called me, and he said, "How's your college doing?" And I said, uh, pedagogically, it's wonderful. Financially, it's a disaster. We're probably going to go bankrupt this summer. And he said, would 20,000 help? I said, who are you and why are you giving me 20,000? But it would certainly help. And he said, well, you don't know me, but my favorite aunt has just died. And I'm her executor. And the last, one of the last things she said to me, I meant to give some money to a young man, that's me, in Oroa, because I like what he's been doing. I was young to her, and she comes from the richest family in Ontario, who own the biggest grocery chains. Uh, and she said, there's plenty of money left over that I haven't given away. This You're free to use as you wish, so call him, see what their needs are, and give it to him. Now, we were not bankrupt. Then we went on. Next time, same sort of thing happened. Third time, same sort of thing happened. We've had an average of 12 and a half students. Um, but they never forget the experience. The most important thing is that you make friends for life because there's something very special about learning the whole of your own cultural history in a group who share your faith. 
and in the process deepening your faith and being excited about learning. And you also have a 10% probability of finding a spouse, which amuses me no end because I can never predict it. Um, but, and what better way to first get to know the person who's going to be your spouse by enjoying the way they think and write and talk without sex coming into it? Uh, not bad. So think about it. And we've had, I mean, this tiny little college has had students come from Norway, Finland, West Africa, Australia, California to Florida, to, uh, to Va Vancouver Island, to Newfoundland. I mean, that's not bad for a, a small college, is it? The whole of this continent and across the world, uh, by word of mouth. The guys from Finland I met in Lebanon, of all places, uh, at, a, at a conference where I was speaking, and he went back and he got the Finnish government to pay the whole bill. And he came and did the course. He's now a physician in Finland. Uh, we have got to train a generation that can stand up and argue. And there are the people out there who can do it. Um, we don't lose. Because they're not fighting us. My favorite verse, which I always remind myself at the beginning of a weekend every time, comes from John 16, uh, where Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. And he says, the Holy Spirit, will, when he comes, will do three things. And it doesn't include getting your hands above your head. Or are they? Well, you can go and find it, but it's this. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So I don't have to do that. And it's amazing the number of times I'm debating, a, being questioned by a liberal. And in my response, I presume those three categories are true. And I've never had the liberal push back and say, I don't accept your categories. Because they're not arguing with me. They're arguing with the Holy Spirit. And they will never win that one. They can do lots of things, but they cannot stop him. And that's what happens. We, we are there, not because Christ has any needs. He has no needs. What I do, what you do, is what we need to do if we're going to get closer to what Christ wants us to be. That's what it's about. It's a training program. Nothing else. When we get to heaven, none of it matters. Compared to that, oh, it's all straw. But the, the journey is amazing. So any questions? I've probably gone well over time. Uh, there's no clock, so it's your fault. That's all not Well, you need to think about it a bit, right? Milad, do you want to say anything? No. Yeah, any, any questions we now build for Write them down. It really is a good idea because you will keep them. Uh, and it's better for me. My hearing is not perfect anymore. Uh, so having them written down is very good. And then keep it in your Bible. It's amazing. I have one in mind. My wife passed it to me in the refugee, refugee camp in, in 1995. And it simply said, 
You're misunderstanding him. He's asking whether a multiple murderer can be forgiven. That's what had happened. Most of them had killed many people in anger. He can be forgiven. But takes me back immediately to that experience. So leaving little bits of paper with things written on them in books is wonderful. You come across and you have to stop and then you realize, oh yeah, I've forgotten that. Um, we have a wonderful story, but we, we're not telling it very well, are we? And we've got to learn to do that again. And the people who are going to help you are novelists. Have any of you yet found Michael O'Brien? Ah, oh, yeah. Once you find him, you will not stop reading him. So you better not find him yet, because his books are this thick. But he is the most brilliant novelist of the 20th century, I think. Uh, he's a friend. Um, he has 12 children. Uh, he's also an icon painter. He's a Catholic at the icon end of the spectrum. But one of his books, Island of the World, is the most stunning novel I've ever read. And the, everybody that I've um, shown it, to, suggested read it personally in a personal conversation, has written to me afterwards. The, my, my favorite one is a lovely pediatrician in Jamaica. And uh, she, she's a lovely woman and a lovely uh, pediatrician. And uh, I caught her one day. She's not married, doesn't have children. Uh, and she was reading a trashy romantic novel. And uh, I said, you could do better than that. And she said, like what? And I said, try Michael O'Brien's uh, Island of the World. Shortly afterwards, uh, we got a lovely email. She said, uh, I'm coming to the end of this book and I'm slowing down because I don't want to finish but I promise you, I'm not going to read another double-spaced trashy novel again. <laughs> and I mean, that's the clue about evangelical literature. They want to make you feel good about reading a book that isn't just double-spaced, it's triple or four-spaced, you know. It's, it's 10 minutes reading, and that was wasted time. Um, read some proper books uh, that will get into your soul. And that one is probably top of our list. My wife doesn't read many novels. She's more concrete, as she says, in her world. But when I read that one, I said, Sally, I think you might read this one. She couldn't put it down. Shortly afterwards, we went to, we went to Deer Valley, where I was speaking that summer. Uh, we arrived and went for coffee. We were a bit early, and there were a couple there, uh, Aaron and, uh, and his wife from uh, Kentucky. And we sat down, had coffee, and said, what are you reading? All four of us had finished that book in the last little while. And the next hour was just talking about that novel. Uh, it is so intense, and he does so many things right. His description of what happens when a Christian gets put into a dungeon having been tortured is incredible. Um, we, the, the best literature always defaults to the Christian story. Novels like that only happen in our world. 
There are stories in other ones, but they're not like that. Dostoevsky, he understood and he said, if they do what they're planning to do, it will cost 100 million lives. And they thought he was exaggerating. He was under, underestimating. But he saw what was going to happen in Western Europe and around the world. And you have people that teach you, especially in the arts, and they're closet Marxists. Don't they know what he did? 500 million people killed by people who were driven by a socialist agenda, which is wrong for what reason? Because its first premise is that we are perfectible. It's utopian. We're not. If, you've, if the Bible is soaked into your soul, you know one thing for certain, without help I screw up. But help is available. But they're saying you don't need help. We can do it ourselves. It's the sin of the Garden of Eden, as John Milton put it. The sin is I will not serve. And we all say that at one point or another. I want my way. Frank Sinatra. It's a disaster. It's not as though it's available. Uh, and we're not good enough to be able to pick it out. Uh, but we've been given it. And it can grow. So, go in peace and I get one other go at it. You do I? Yeah. Uh, I will try in the last session to teach you the four key ideas uh, that have informed the Western mind that have been disastrous. Uh, it starts with scientific reductionism, better called scientism for you, which informed the management of COVID, for example. And that leads to a sequence. If you can't deal with these things in public, reductionism, relativism, all four varieties, uh, tolerance, the sanctity of life, sexuality, and creation. If you can't deal with those things in a way that the liberal has to engage and can't win, you're not prepared because we win all of those arguments. Never lose. Uh, you know, literally, uh, I say to the Lord, thank you, Lord, for delivering them into my hands because within two minutes they've committed Harry Carry. And they don't know it. And you can be very gentle with them because they actually dig a hole and fall into it. Thank you guys all for listening today. I hope you really enjoyed it. If you have enjoyed it, feel free to leave a comment, leave a review, or share it with a friend. And if you have a question for Dr. John, you can ask that at www.johnpatrick.ca forward slash ask, or you can check the links in the description below. Thank you guys all so much, and we will see you all next week. Mm -hmm.